0: Again, I'm so glad that each one of you are here, and I am, we're, we're going to do our very best to wrap up the book of James tonight, and uh, I've got, let's see, I have 26 pages of notes. Brother Perryman, that means I've got roughly about a minute and 15 seconds per page, some of that will be very easy. The way my notes are, I have lots of verses that we don't necessarily have to read. But as I was doing this, I, if you'll give me just a moment to reflect back, uh, I hope and trust, and I guess please don't tell me if you didn't like it, because I'll go home and cry. But I hope and trust that, that somewhere the book of James has spoken to you. It, it is a book of the Bible that other than the, the teaching on the tongue I don't know that I had really given it the proper study. It was easy to pick out verses. It was easy to pick out, you know, the effectual fervent prayers of righteous men avail much. It's easy to pick that out. But to be honest, I don't know that I had ever completely put it into the context that it was. You've heard me say, for this will be the sixth lesson in, in the book of James. You've heard me say every one of these lessons. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. Uh, I, I, there's a, a forum that I'm a part of and It's, it's uh, Apostolic United Pentecostal Church Ministers And uh, sometimes they're crazy But I, I posted today on it that I was finishing up my, my study of the book of James And I just said I have learned so much and, and if you're a pastor you owe it to yourself to teach it And I was amazed at the responses I got back people that are preaching it and teaching it, and and people that were actually in it right now. There was four or five pastors that I didn't know. They're they're doing the book of James right now. It is so full. And, And I have been asked pretty much all of my ministerial career, in some way, shape, or form, for people to say, Brother Buford, would you just tell me what I need to do to be saved? Now, it's real easy, first off, to do the Acts 2.38. Repent of your sins, be baptized, you're filled with the Holy Ghost. It's real easy to do that, but then it's, what do I need to do after that? Well, James is a pretty good understanding, and to be honest, I told my wife uh, this morning, or maybe last night, I said, man, this this fifth chapter of James, it just doesn't flow as easily as the first four. And uh, I had printed it out, and I, I literally, for over and over, I just read it and I would highlight something in my notes and just trying to get it flowing in my mind. And all of a sudden, it just clicked. How in depth the book of James really is. Can I just tell you today, in fact, let me do it this way. If, if, if I had to give you a, a memory verse for the book of James, I think I would probably say that the book of James is best summed up by these verses, and if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn there with me. James chapter 1, verse 2, going through verse 6. If I had to say this is the kind of the crux, this is the, the, what all of James hinges on. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And it shall be given him, but let him ask in faith. Nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave on the sea driven by the wind and tossed. Did you catch that several times it uses phrases like this? The trying works patience and the patience let it have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire complete wanting nothing if you don't have the wisdom if you lack wisdom ask and God will give it and not just give a little bit the Bible says he'll give it liberally James is about the maturing of the saint of God And we have sung about it, we preach about it, we talk about it. How many times have you, and I want to see by the raising of hands, how many times have you in your life said, I want to be like God? Thank you for raising your hands, because I was getting a little nervous when I only saw three people raise their hand. Is anybody like God yet? No. What does that mean? I got to work on it. Am I going to be like God? Nope. There's nobody going to be perfect. But the understanding is there is a progression for living for God. You cannot get more saved. I don't mean that. There's not levels of salvation. But there is absolutely a, a progression of sanctification. I am coming out of the world and I am drawing closer to Him. And the book of James tells us how to do it. Now, again, let me do this real quick. And and I don't if you're writing it down, go back and listen. I said all of this at one point or the other. Chapter one, these are the marks of a mature Christian. Chapter one, we know that the, the Christian is patient when he is tested. There's trials on the inside, trials are from God, trials make us better. There are temptations on the inside, and those temptations are bad. They come from the devil, and they are designed to trip us up and to mess us up. But whether it's a trial from the devil, I mean a a temptation from the devil, or a trial from God, the idea is be patient and let God do the work. Don't get the cart before the horse. Don't be an Abraham and Sarah and try to make something happen in the flesh that only God can do. In the second chapter of James, we learn that a mature Christian practices the truth. And he does so in two ways. He does it with faith and love and faith with works. You you can't just say, I have faith. I want to see your faith. Saying, I have faith and never doing it is akin to saying, I believe in the power of electricity but never turning on a light switch. At some point, you got to go flip the switch and see if it works. In the third chapter, we learned that a mature Christian has the power over his tongue. James exhorted us for a little bit, and then he illustrated it a few ways, and then he applied it. Last week, we learned that a mature Christian is a peacemaker, not a troublemaker. We talked about the three wars and the three enemies, and then James gave us three admonitions to fight and to to guard ourselves that we don't get entangled in the wrong thing. And in chapter 5, in one way or the other, we're going to talk about a man or, or a lady, a, a mature Christian that is patient and prayerful in troubles. Now, as you know, I have been using Warren Wiersbe's commentary in his outline of the book of James. And so what I just read you is the outline from him. And I, I will be honest that he breaks the troubles down in four ways. Economic troubles, physical troubles, national troubles, and church troubles. As we learn about it today, you won't hear me break it up quite. That concisely, I I kind of didn't see it exactly as he laid it out, and that doesn't mean anything. But so we're gonna try to try to get there. But you know, uh, so many times we as Christians <coughs> we look at, and and you know me, there are no levels to sin. Okay, a white lie is as bad in the sight of God. As murdering somebody. Say amen. Even if you don't believe it, say amen. I will, I will tell you today, in, in fact I had a conversation with several people uh, today. The Bible tells us that we are going to be held accountable for every idle word we say. I'm not trying to scare anybody, but I am convinced there are going to be some, some, some good Christians, if I can use that word, that are going to get to heaven and God is going to remind them of an idle threat, an idle, somebody got mad and just let it all come out or, 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 or just that, that one dirty joke that just you didn't think anything of and he's going to remind you now, how God will judge, I can't say, but I know he will. And so listen to me, you cannot have levels of sin. There may be levels of consequence there may be, uh, when I'm, what I mean by that is you could tell a little white lie and in a sense it doesn't hurt anybody but your soul. Or you could go and commit mass murder and a bunch of people die. There may be levels in those types of consequences. But in God's eye, a sin is a sin. And so a mature Christian does not try to just focus on the big things and say, well, I'm going to heaven because I never committed adultery. I'm going to heaven because, you know, I'm not, I'm not into child pornography. I'm going to heaven because I didn't murder anybody. A mature Christian realizes that the word of God deals so much more than those three issues I just talked about. But if we're not careful, we'll spend all of our time talking about those big gigantic sins. And people will sit in the pew thinking, I'm okay because I didn't do any of those great, big, awful, ugly sins. When in reality, our lives is not matching up with what the Word of God says. And that's where the book of James chapter 5 comes into play. If you have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen as well. I'm going to start reading. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm going to start reading from uh, the English Standard Version. Sister Buford, could you get me some water? Uh, It says this, Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eating and your gold and silver have corroded and the corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat up your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fatted, fattened your hearts in the day of a slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Now, that sounds Awful. But guess what? It's not talking about Bernie Madoff. It's not, thank you very much. It's not talking about, uh, you know, all these people you see in the news. This was James writing to a church in Jerusalem, meaning everything I just read was church people. Uh Uh-oh. Now we start seeing something. And so uh, one comedian, and I don't know who it was, one comedian said it this way, if money talks... All it ever says to me is goodbye. Anybody like that? I don't, I mean, I I definitely understand that. But that is not what we're talking about today. But I'm going to tell you today, Jesus said it best. Show me where your treasure is, and I will show you where your heart is. What that means is your money talks. It will tell you something. And so the men that James begins to address, they were rich men. They were in the church. But there were some ways that they were using their riches that was sinful. And, and so he told them, he, now first off, I'm going to be careful to say this. It is not a sin to be rich. It's not a sin to have money. It's not a sin to have a bank account. After all, Abraham, the father of the faithful, was a wealthy man. Yet he walked with God. But James was concerned about the selfishness that sometimes gets wrapped up with wealth and with the riches that we have. And the words that James used was, don't just, don't just, you know, mourn. He said, I want you to weep and howl, meaning you better be careful what you are accumulating in this world. And, and, and I want to show you, James, uh, and again, according to Warren Wiersbe, James gave three reasons why they need to be careful of how you accumulate riches in this world? The first one. Let's look at James chapter four. I'm, I'm sorry, James chapter five, verse four, and then the first part of of verse six. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of Hosts. You have condemned, and you've murdered uh, the righteous person. Again, the Bible does not discourage acquiring wealth. I would say that that the Bible is very clear that we ought to provide for our our children. We ought to uh, save up. We ought to make sure we're not just spending it and being broke. There's all of those there. But what the Bible does have a problem with is how did you get your wealth? If you got your wealth with illegal means or illegal purposes, he has a problem with that, in fact. If you'll do a study on the book of Amos, Amos's message of judgment went against those that were of the wealthy families, if you will, the upper crust, as one person put it. And they had robbed the poor, and God didn't like it. And God said, Amos, I want you to speak to them. Isaiah and Jeremiah had a lot to say about the selfishness of the rich, And he warned them that judgment was coming. And so in this same spirit, again, we're not talking about uh, uh, if if you're rich, whatever you want to say rich is. If you have wealth, that's not bad. But James had a problem because in his church, he had some people who who were hiring people to work for him and not paying. And if you're getting rich because you've got free workers and you're not paying for it, God says, i got a problem with that. In fact, there's a televangelist right now. I don't know, can't remember his name, but he had a restaurant and he had a big church and he got people to work in his restaurant and he didn't pay him. And and uh, right now there's a huge lawsuit and, and settlement against him, and he's got to go pay, I wanna say almost half a million dollars to people in his church that he got to work at the restaurant. Now we're not talking about a church work day. We need that. But we're talking about, you know, working at a restaurant and, and doing all that. He said, I'm I didn't want to pay you. That's part of your ministry. Well IRS didn't see it that way Do you remember the parable of the laborers In Matthew where Jesus said The the man went out and it was the morning And he hired somebody and he said I'm going to pay you this much And then halfway through the day he needed some more laborers So he went out and he got some more laborers And he said I'm going to pay you this much And it was the same amount And then at the evening time he realized he needed just a few more And he got some more The idea there was that there were day laborers And they were hired and paid by the day Uh. Math, or, or I'm sorry, Deuteronomy says it this way, and, and, and I'm kind of paraphrasing. You shall not oppress a hired servant, even if he's a countryman or one of the aliens who is in the land and your towns. You shall give him his wages on the day before the sun sets. He's poor, and he sets his heart on it, and so you don't want to withhold it, and that way he won't cry against you to the Lord, and it become a sin to you. Meaning when you told the guy, I want you to come work for me and I'm going to pay you $100 today, don't wait till next week to pay him if you told him you are going to pay him today. Because that man was counting on that. Now if you have a bi-weekly paycheck, absolutely. Watch what Jeremiah said. Woe to him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by wrong that useth his neighbor's service without wages and giveth him not for his work. Again, these were people who had pro- who, who had hired people, promised to pay them, and then it didn't come forth and and so it, it, it indicates and this is where I want you to understand the Bible is so much more than acts 238 the Bible is so much more than those big sins the way we run our businesses will be we will be judged on that as Christians. the way we work even if you don't own your own business, the way you work at your uh, place of employment you're going to be judged on that and I'm going to tell you today there will be people who will not make it to heaven simply because of what they did in business a second thing a, a, a second thing that, that the, the wealthy could do in those days is they could control the courts somebody, one comic strip and I've, I've seen it, I just can't remember who it was said what's the golden rule and somebody replied, whoever has the gold makes the rule. You ever heard that? Did you know that God when, when he established Israel, he had it very clear that there were going to be courts and there was ways to, to to make sure that wrongs were righted? But God in Deuteronomy 17 and Exodus 18, he warned those judges, don't be greedy. You are not to be partial. If you're if you like sports, you don't like it when the umpires are partial to one team or not. If you go to court, you don't want somebody to be partial to one side or not. The judge was not to tolerate lying, you, bribery. God condemned bribery in the Bible. And so it was, and it seems that in, in James' day, some poor workers that may have had a case didn't have any money. They couldn't afford the lawsuits. And so whenever they would go and say, hey, I didn't get paid, the rich could kind of tamp it all down. And again, it was there so, uh, the Bible warned against here that if you're getting your wealth unrightly and unholily, then you're in trouble. See, we, you, you ought to know this, he owns everything. I know you work forty hours, sixty hours. I know you own your own business. And you worked hard for that, but a true Christian realizes that anything I have is because of Him. I am just a steward. We talk about the church being a steward of God's money. You and your family, and in your business, you are a steward of God's money. And so it is that that uh, proverbs. I mean, let me let me just throw some proverbs out. Uh. Wealth obtained by fraud dwindles, but he who gathers by labor increases it. Again, that's a different translation of Proverbs 13, 11. Proverbs 10 says, it's the hand of the diligent that makes rich. I'm not against the wealth. But here's the thing. How you got your wealth will be a determination of the character you have in God. Whoa, and this is, this is Brandon Buford's version. Woe to them who steal. Woe to them that that do business in an underhanded manner. Woe to them who defraud their brothers in court. The second admonition that James gives uh, to the rich is not only how they got it, but how they use it. How do you use what God has given you? Let's watch James chapter 5, verse 3. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion is evidence against you. They'll eat up your flesh like fire. You've laid treasure up in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. You kept by fraud. You've heard me say that. It's bad enough to gain a a wealth and call it a blessing from God and gain it in a sinful manner. But it's also bad to use that that, that, that wealth or to use what God has given you in sinful ways. First off, they stored it up. Now listen carefully. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14 says, For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. Hear that, Dad? Just wanted you to make sure you understood that. And, uh, but there is, the, the Lord understood a principle. Families take care of the future. I've, I've seen families just devastated because... A simple act that could have helped them in the future wasn't taken care of. Maybe it was life insurance or maybe it was, you know, uh, they, they, they spent everything now and they didn't have anything in savings later. And I, I've seen that. But, in fact, 1 uh, uh, Timothy said this way, if you provide not for your own, especially for your own house, you're worse than an infidel. God is very clear that we do need to save for the future. All right? In fact, Jesus gave a parable when he told, you know, the parable of the talents. He said, you should have at least put it in the bank and got some interest for me when I came back. God is not against saving. But it is wrong to store up wealth and to hoard it and thinking you're rich because you have all of this possession. In fact, I could, I could tell it to you best by, by Jesus' com- uh, uh, parable in Matthew chapter 6 about the rich man that got all of this and stored it in his barns and then said, I'm going to sit back and just get fat and sassy. And that day his life was was there. Instead of laying up treasures in heaven by using what God had blessed them with and their wealth for God's glory, they were guarding it for their own security and and pleasure. In fact, I'll tell you this, James obviously had somebody or or some people in mind when he wrote this. In just ten years after the book of James, Jerusalem fell. And everything they had in any bank, and everything they had was to- token, uh, t- stolen and taken and gone. To lay up treasures in heaven means that we use all that we have as stewards for God's wealth. You and I, you may have things. You may possess things. But I don't own them. And, and if you'll allow me to, because I know sometimes this gets a little tight. But let me be a little funny. I've operated my life that... I do like toys. I like my. I got a little 12-foot bass boat that Brother Bob Hickey got me, and, and, and helped me get, and and it's nothing much, but I can go catch fish on it. But you know what? I decided I can't be selfish with that thing, cause God'll make it sink. Brother uh, uh, Don Cozar, you you and I have had conversation on this. I'm gonna take people fishing, so God will help me catch more fish. Maybe that's the wrong way to look at it. But I've met people. That have stuff and they are so selfish they never even enjoy it, much less let anybody else enjoy it. What a tragedy it becomes when, when people heap treasures up for themselves, but there's no treasure in heaven. And so it is that God is watching how we use the blessings or how we use wealth, if we could use that, that terminology. See, in, in, in apostolic talking, we don't like to talk a lot about wealth because we want to get so far away from the prosperity doctrine that we don't sound like that, that we sometimes forget it. But it, there is some inherent blessings of working for God and living for God. and There are blessings there, and God wants to make sure that you don't just store it and hoard it and hoard it. God gave it so you can bless something. You can in turn give back. And and that leads me to the the next thing is they they kept others from benefiting it. Not only did did some of them keep the poor, they they literally did not pay their employees. But then they didn't do anything with it either. Can I just tell you today that 1 Corinthians says this, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. You and I, and I'm going to quote from Warren Wearsby here, he said, You and I must be faithful to use what God gives us for the good of others and the glory of God. And one of the best ways to explain that is to watch Joseph in Potiphar's house. Because Joseph was a good steward, God blessed him and God blessed Potiphar's family. And then when, when things happened, it, it went even, and later on, after Joseph went to prison and came out. Joseph was was faithful in the stewardship of the kingdom of of Egypt. God blessed him. God blessed his family. Third thing that can be a problem when you use it is living in luxury. One literal translation of James chapter 5 verse 5. One literal translation reads it this way. You have lived in the high style on the earth. I'm going to be right here and tell you. I am so thankful for indoor plumbing. I am so thankful that I have a car and I don't have to walk everywhere. I'm thankful for air conditioning. And I am not about to start preaching that we got to go back to the primitive ways of life. All of us ought to be grateful for the good things of life. But there is a point of diminishing returns. someone said. Luke said it, or, or the, the book of Luke records it this way. And again, this is a, a different translation Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Remember when, when David passed by Samuel? And Samuel didn't think anything of David, and David and, and, and Samuel told uh, uh or God told Samuel when those people were passing, he says, I don't look on the outside, I look on the heart. You could have literally all of the money in the bank, but that is not what defines you. You could have all of the cars in the world, but that's not what defines you. Again, let me, let me quote from Warren Wiersbe. In, in this sentence, I wrote it down. Man, I highlighted it. I wrote the word key because this jumped out at me. And if you, if you like to take notes, this is one of those notes you ought to take care of. If you match your character with wealth, you can produce much good. But if you match self-indulgence with wealth, the result is sin. If you'll take the character of a Holy Ghost-filled life and put it with the wealth and the blessings of God, it will do incredible things. But if you let greed and self-indulgence kick in, it'll lead to sin. So it was. (coughs) The third thing that happened not only how they got their riches and what they did with their riches, but what those riches do. See, they thought they had it made because they had stuff in the, in, the, in the bank and they had big, big barns and big crops and they thought they were rich and increased with goods, but God said, howl for the miseries that will come upon you. He said grain is going to rot, it's going to be corrupted. Gold will rust, and we know gold doesn't actually rust, but it was just that corrosion that can happen. Garments become moth-eaten. Listen, nothing material in this world lasts. I can only hear the snippet of the song in my mind right now that says only what is done for Christ will last. And so it is that God told the rich man in Luke chapter 12, you're a fool. This night your soul will be required of thee And then everything you've got stored away Whose is it going to be See money is not sinful Money is very neutral There's nothing sinful about money But yet Timothy Or Paul told Timothy He said the love of money Is the root of all evil The last of the ten commandments We preach on this Thou shalt not covet Well Covetness breaks all the other commandments But watch this Abraham was rich He maintained his faith and his character, and he was called the friend of God. Lot became rich. It ruined his character. It ruined his family. And you don't, only thing you know about Lot is his wife turned to salt. Psalms said this if riches increase, don't set your heart above it. Proverbs says a good name is better than to have all of the riches, and loving favor better than silver and gold. See, James, when he looked at, at, at this, these rich men that were doing wrong, he saw that there was a judgment that was happening right now. Their wealth was decaying. But he also saw a future judgment. See, this is what's really interesting. The Bible tells us that in the final judgment, that wealth is going to witness against them. Remember, where your treasure is, there your heart is. God's gonna judge us, and He's gonna—I don't know if God has PowerPoint, but in my mind He does—and you're gonna stand before it, and He's gonna start putting up all your treasure, and He's gonna show all the treasure you thought you had, and how how much you loved your treasure, and that treasure is gonna start speaking, and it's gonna say you love me more than you love God. Not only that, but the wages they held back is gonna witness against them. Those, as one person wrote it, those stolen salaries will cry out for God. Justice and his judgment. Let me tell you this. In Genesis chapter 4, the Bible records that Abel's blood cried out from the ground. If we, in our business and in our character, harm others, it's going to cry out at judgment. And then not only that, those workers are going to testify against it. And then the, the last thing that, that James was sad was the loss of an incredible opportunity that these had. Being rich, being increased with goods, being blessed, if I could use that term. We don't like to use the word rich. I don't think that anybody here would raise their hand and say, hey, pastor, I'm rich. I don't know that anybody would say that, but we really are. We really are increased with goods. But see, James uses in verse 3, James uses the term the last days because James operated on this assumption, he's coming soon. Ephesians chapter 5, there's a literal translation that says we must buy up the opportunity. And then to complete that, we'd go to John chapter 9 and work while it's still day. What James was trying to tell his church was, it's okay for God to bless you. Just do it right. Don't come to church and act like everything's good when you've hurt others and you climb for for wealth. But another person wrote something like this. What good is a $500,000 house if it's not a home? What good is a half a, a, a million dollar diamond ring if there's no love? See, James didn't condemn wealth. James didn't condemn riches or even those that had it. He condemned the wrong use of that. He, used, he, he condemned those who used it as a weapon and not a tool. We go all the way back to James chapter 2. It says it's possible to be poor in this world yet be rich in the life to come. It's also possible, First Timothy says, to be poor, or, or what did I say? To it's, Be poor in this world, rich in the other. But it's also possible to be rich in this world and increase with goods, but be absolutely broke in the time to come. What we keep, another person wrote what we keep we lose what we give to god we keep and god adds it with interest somebody uh, there was a preacher he was known for long sermons and in his community they had a, a time where they they called it the charity sermon and it was a time where they would preach a message and encourage people to give to charities and things like that and he was going to preach and someone told him said you know if you preach too long it's going to wear the people out and they won't give as much that preacher who was known to be long-winded got up and he read from Proverbs 19, He that hath pity on the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will God pay him again. And then he said, if you like the terms, put down your money. And he walked off the stage. If you'll trust God, anything you do for him, the return is amazing. Now we like to talk about that return when it comes to giving to the church tithes and offerings and I'm absolutely a believer in that. But I will tell you what you do for others that the church never sees and how you operate the blessings that God has given you is one of the greatest litmus tests of your character with God. Money talks. What will it say about you in the last judgment? Would you look at James chapter 5 In verse 7, and I'm going to have to be quick on this, and I think I can. (coughs) James chapter 5 and verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, unto the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brother, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, nor any other oath, let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. James was writing to his church. Those that had suffered, maybe they had suffered because they didn't get paid. Maybe they had suffered because someone had spoken a bad word against them. Maybe they were suffering because of trials or tribulations. But at the beginning of James' letter, James chapter 1, the first five verses, his, his point was be patient. And as James begins to close the letter, he reminds you, be patient. Is God going to make everything perfect today while you live on this earth? Probably not. But there is coming a day when every right will be wronged and when everyone will be judged and we are to be patient there. Three times James tells us that the, the Lord is coming soon. Titus uses the word, the blessed hope. John 16.33 says in this world you're going to have tribulation. And Paul told his people in Acts chapter 14, he said, if you want to get into the kingdom of God, you're going to have to go through tribulation. It's not all a bed of roses, which I've never figured out why that's so good anyway. Seems to be a bit uncomfortable. But somebody said a bed of roses is what you wanted. I don't really understand it, but, you know, whatever. But life is not all that. Life has its ups and downs. And and, and James uses two words. He uses the word endurance and he uses the word patience. Literally, again, literally it means to remain under. Patience means to stay put and stand fast when you'd like nothing better than to run away. Endurance means, uh, in fact, let me put it this way. I, I read somewhere that There are some Greek scholars that say the word patience applies to how you and I deal in respect with persons. You are to have patience with one another. You are to have patience if someone has wronged you. But you are to endure conditions or situations. Does that make sense? We endure a sickness. We endure the loss of a job. We endure, the Bible says endure, but we are patient with one another. And so to answer how in the world can we, if we're going to mature and be like God, how can we do those things? James gives us three examples. The farmer, the prophets, and Job. Really, to be honest, if I was going to preach this one, I'd have you come up, Brother Sponsler, or some of the other ones. How many of you have planted a tomato bush and gotten frustrated you didn't get any tomatoes and you gave up? Some of you are honest; some of you are not quite so honest. you don't just plant a seed, walk out the next day, and jack the beanstalks grown. you plant that if if you if you do the the old way where you literally plant a seed and not a not a you know an already growing thing, see when I go to i'll probably plant a couple of uh of, why are you laughing, Sister Buford? I'll go and plant a couple tomato bushes coming up pretty soon. I've got some nice planters. I'll do them around the patio because I don't have a place for a garden yet. But uh, when I go there, I go and I pick the ones that already have some tomatoes on them. They may only be that big because I'm really impatient. In my mind, I don't know if it's true with pyramid, but in my mind that means I'll get them faster. But if you literally plant a seed, it could be weeks before you even see anything pop up. But be patient. It takes watering. Too much water, it'll kill it. Too little water, it'll kill it. You've got to be careful. You've got to know. You have to have patience with the seed. You've got to have patience with the soil. You've got to have patience with all of that. And so it is. Why are we patient? It's because we know the fruit of that is coming. Why, do, why am I willing to go out there and water that tomato plant? faithfully and make sure that I put a little bit of fertilizer on it. Why? Because I know around the 4th of July or so there's going to be a nice, ripe juicy tomato that I get to eat. As one person said, the harvest is worth waiting for. Paul said in Galatians, in due season we reap if we faint not. James says, be patient. Establish your heart. It takes time. And I know you're going through it. I know that, that sometimes it rains too much in your life and sometimes you walk through a spiritual drought. But listen to me. It's worth it. It's worth it. God's got it. And He says, just be patient. There is a harvest in your life. It may be a fruit of the Spirit you don't know about yet. That's about to come to fruition. But if you'll be patient through trials and troubles... You're like a spiritual farmer looking for a harvest. Then it's the prophets. When James, talking to the church in Jerusalem, began to talk about prophets, they knew. You remember old Jeremiah? What do we call him? The weeping prophet. Why? Because he preached and taught and nobody listened. But did he give up? No. There's something that that sometimes gets put into living for God and Christianity, and that is that if you do everything right for God, you'll never have any trouble, which is about the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Because the prophets did things right, and they got in trouble. Some of them were stoned, some of them were sawed in half, some of them were put down in a hole like Jeremiah, and, and, and all of this happened. They were in the will of God and they suffered. They were preaching in the name of the Lord and they were persecuted. But Satan likes to whisper in our ear that that if you're faithful, then if you're suffering, it's because you've sinned or because you're unfaithful. Go look at the story of Job. What did they tell him? The reason you got all this going on is because you've done something bad to anger God. But again, Paul said, if you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. And if anybody wants to argue with that, I would tell you that the most perfect man on the earth that did everything right still ended up on a cross. And so the prophets encourage us, they remind us that even when we're suffering for His sake, God is with us. God is with us. If Elijah had to endure the drought that he himself had to call on when he looked at King Ahab and said, God said it's not going to rain for three years or three and a half years, guess who also had to live in that drought? Elijah. One person said it this way, the will of God will never lead you or the grace of God can't keep you. And so it is that we need to remind ourselves that sometimes the trials that come are because we're living for him. Don't give up. Don't say, man, I just can't do it. I'm gonna pa- I'm gonna, As Job's wife said, and that's where we're going now, Job's wife said, just curse him and die. Can I just promise you don't do that? The end is greater than any suffering. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. Again, a different translation. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that we through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures might have hope. King David can make it. I can make it. If Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the three Hebrew children can make it, I can make it. God's got me, and He ended with Job. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You know, sometimes it's like the three Hebrew children. In fact, I had a conversation with someone today. Actually, two people. One, and they both, they both have dealt with, one is dealing with it and the other one has already dealt with it. The one that has dealt with it, I mean it was like God just in the middle of it opened the windows of heaven and everything worked out perfectly. You couldn't have scripted it any better. They were talking to the one today that's still going through it. Frustrated because they don't see an end in it. And it's not worked perfectly for them. And it's not laid out for them. And I would take you to the book of Daniel. The three Hebrew children. They walked in the fiery furnace, and God delivered them out of the fiery furnace. But sometimes we don't get the deliverance, we get the endurance. And when James was talking about the blessing that comes not during, but after, he pointed us to Job. That Job didn't know what was happening in between the scenes. He didn't see what was going on between God and Satan. He had friends that called him a hypocrite, friends that called him a sinner, a wife that that told him to curse God and die. And, And if you really want to see how bad your life is, no one compares to Job. He lost his wealth, his health, his children, his wife, almost left him, his friends were against him and there were a moment when it seemed even that God was against him and when he cried out to heaven nothing answered at first yet Job endured Satan had put all of his money Satan had made a bet with God if you will, that Job would give up before the blessing came and Job didn't God made a covenant with Israel that if they would obey he would bless them and again it leads to the idea that creeps into the church that if if something bad happens to you you must have done something wrong but I will tell you that's not true Paul said it best my grace or or Jesus he he was saying of God of Jesus his grace is sufficient for me (coughs) I'm, I'm skipping over a few things just for time when it talks about let your yeses be yeses and your no be no. It doesn't seem like it fits, but here it is in a nutshell. True Christian character requires few words. Again, let me use the hunting or fishing illustration. You ever met that person that their stories just seem a little larger than life? Now, don't look at anybody here. That's why I take pictures of all my fish, so you know it. Sister Julie, I've had people and they do this. Oh, Sister Julie, I was fishing the other day and you should have seen, if I'm lying, I'm dying right now. I promise you the truth. I'm telling you the truth right now. It's there. If someone has to work that hard for you to believe them, chances are they're telling you a lie. All you got to say is, I caught a three-pound bass. And if I tell you that, I want you to know I'm telling you the truth. If you gotta swear by God and the earth and the footstool and you gotta swear by the hairs on your head and you gotta do all that, yeah, it ain't working. If you're and, and again, this is what James is saying if you're a true Christian and you have integrity, then your yes will be yes, and your no will be no, and that's all you have to do. And then he ends with this let us pray. In, in the last chapter, verse 4, he gave the lowest uses of the tongue, talking about complaining and swearing. And, but here he talks about some of the greatest things you can do with your voice. You can proclaim God's word, you can pray, and you can praise. So let me read in verse 13 through the end, and then I'm going to hit the high notes, and we're going to wrap this up. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of the faith shall save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So therefore, confess your sins one to another. Pray for the one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. That's that effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man avail much verse. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three and six months it did not rain on the earth, and he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whosoever brings him back, a sinner from his wandering shall save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. There is four things, four things, uh, uh, situations that you and I need to pray for the first is the prayer of the suffering James is full of the word trouble suffering in difficult circumstances I'm so thankful that God doesn't let all of us go through a struggle all at the same time in any given moment in this church some are up some are down some can sing praises some just simply endure. And I'm not here to, to criticize when you are, are up and get all bitter. And you ought not look down on me when I'm down and I'm enduring. But what I do know is that sometimes when we pray, God can remove that affliction. And it's gone in an instant. But other times when I pray, God gives me more grace and though my circumstance may not change, in my weakness I'm made strong. Is anyone marry? Let him sing psalms. But I'll tell you today that one of the truest marks of a Christian is can you sing when you're not married? Can you be a Paul and Silas in stocks and bonds in the lowest point of your life looking at a possible death sentence but at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. Which is why we say often from behind this pulpit, our worship is not predicated on the music, the beat, the song, or anything like that. My worship is predicated on what's happening inside of me. The reason I praise Him is not mindless mouthing of words. I praise Him because I know who He is. And I know what He's done. And I'm very thankful for that. Prayer for the sick. Now, I believe in all of that. We, we call the elders of the church, we anoint with all, we pray, and we can do that. But I saw something with the help of some other study I did that I just want to kind of show you another side to that verse that you need to think about. And that is, there's, a, there's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, teaches us that if you are out of sorts with God, it can affect your, your health you remember when it says, uh, talking about the way they were taking communion, it said, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. And so it is that some people are sick because of their sin. And so it was that when James was talking about it, he kind of indicates that sometimes the reason we don't get the healing we're asking for is because you've never confessed your sin. It says that person is healed by the prayer of faith. That confidence that we have that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And so it is that, that confessing, it's not done just to anybody. We don't even, we're not even supposed to confess to a preacher or a priest. 1 John says we confess our sins to the Lord. And then one person wrote it this way, We never confess sin beyond the circle of that sin's influence. If, I, if my sin is between me and God, I need to tell God. If my sin is between you and I, I need to go and say I'm sorry to you. If my sin is greater, I need to confess there. But if we'll pray, God can heal. Because again, James was talking to his church. And he realized that some people just, they, they wanted God to do a healing, but they didn't want to change anything in their life. So he prayed. The third one that he prayed for was prayer for the nation and that's where I mentioned right as we prayed for the police department prayer of a righteous man powerful and effective and he, he uses Elijah now Elijah man what a, what a, what a man Single-handedly stands at the court of one of the wickedest kings of all of Israel and the wickedest woman that's ever walked the face of the earth, and would shake his bony finger in their face, and 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 he was able to, to part the, the Jordan River with his mantle and, and he was able to see miracles that had happened and and he could speak. I mean I know it was with God's unction, but he could speak to the to the heavens and it not rained for three and a half years, and he could speak again and it would rain. Do you know what's interesting? Some might say, well, that's because he was special. James says he was just like you, just like me. There was nothing special about him except the fact that he prayed. He prayed in faith. Robert Law wrote this, Prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven. It's getting God's will done on earth. Not only did Elijah pray, and this is, some of us pray But the the difference is Elijah was persistent. He prayed, and he prayed again, and he prayed again. Hey, servant, I'm praying. Do you see the cloud? No, I don't see any cloud. Elijah kept praying. Do you see the cloud now? Nope, I don't see any clouds. Elijah kept praying. Until finally that persistent, fervent prayer of a righteous man began to avail much Hey, Elijah, I see a cloud the size of a man's hand. Elijah says, you better put on your running shoes. It don't look like much, but I know what I've been praying for. And it's coming. He prayed earnestly. <laughs> one, person, one person said that the literal Greek reads that Elijah prayed in prayer, and they go on to say that many people don't pray in their prayers, they just lazily say some religious words and mumbo jumbo. Can I just encourage you, and I know it sounds funny, would you learn to pray when you pray? It's the greatest power you and I have, effectual fervent prayer avails much. One of the first responsibilities that this church ought to have is to pray for our communities, our cities because if Elijah can can change the course of a nation I believe this church can avail much through prayer then I end would you stand the last two verses of James doesn't specifically name prayer but it lends itself so perfectly to it those who stray those who wander, that gradual moving away from God. Sometimes someone's overtaken by a fault. They slip and they slip hard, but far too often it's the gradual fade, the slow fade. I was reading and began to see it, that Jesus at the, at the Last Supper, Jesus looked at Peter. Now, who was talking? Jesus. It's Jesus' words. When I read this, I'm reading the words of him. So so even though Jesus wasn't, you know, the Bible hadn't been put together, when Jesus spoke, it's as gospel as this. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter heard the word of God, and this is what he said. No, I ain't. And there's a lot of people that hear the word of God and deny it. And then Peter Begin to argue with the Word of God. I would never do that. No, you're crazy. And I've watched people argue with God's Word. Argue with God Himself. The next time you see Peter after that, he's sleeping when he should have been praying. Spiritual disciplines are going by the wayside. I wanted to preach a whole message about this. And then the last thing you see is denying and cussing and cursing and lying. And it didn't start there. It started with refusing to believe the word of God. Arguing with the word of God. Spiritual disciplines going down the drain because of wandering. What do we do when we watch and see someone that's wandering? We should pray. And we should do everything we can. Not to criticize, not to condemn but to see if we can turn them back to the right path and you say well do believers really need that absolutely because Jesus said Peter when you are converted strengthen thy brethren I'm going to have times where I need somebody to speak into my life Brother Perryman you've done that in the nine years you've been here there's been times you've spoken into my life because you see "Hey, hey Brandon everything okay learn to do that for others Someone said this, I think it was Warren Wiersbe. It's important that we seek to win the lost, but it's also important to win the saved. We can't get so caught up in reaching the sinner, We forget about each other. So now we end James. Spiritual maturity. And so I would like to read to you 12 questions that Warren Weersby wrote at the end of his study. And this would be a good way for you to take it. And, and, and if you want, you can text me or call me or email me and I'll send these to you if, you if you want something to post on your mirror. Here's some questions you can ask yourself as we've completed six lessons in James. Number one, am I becoming more patient in the testings of my life? Number two, do I play with temptation, flirt with temptation, or do I resist it before it hardly ever gets started? Do I find joy in obeying the Word of God, or do I just simply read it and never apply it? Are there any prejudices that shackle and and put me in, in bonds? Am I able to control my tongue? Am I a peacemaker rather than a troublemaker? When I get around people, do I stir up the pot or do I mend the broken? Am I a friend of God or a friend of the world? Do I make plans with God's help and His will or do I make plans without considering the will of God? Am I selfish when it comes to money? Am I unfaithful in the paying of my bills? Do I naturally depend on prayer when I find myself in some kind of trouble? Am I the kind of person that others ask me to pray for? What's my attitude toward the wandering brother? Do I criticize and gossip? Or do I seek to restore him in love? One person just dealing with old age if you will and my brain just shut off now I gotta read it I thought I could do it by putting it don't grow old he said grow up living for God is like that I don't know how long you've had the Holy Ghost how long if I can use the word how long you've been saved but I ask you one one simple question are you closer to God right now Than you have been at any other time in your life living for God. If you hesitate or if you say no, then you need to get back in the book of James and you need to let God direct you. I wonder if we could just lift our hands for a moment. Just begin to talk to Him. Just, just for just a moment. We got just just give me two or three minutes, please. Change me Lord Don't let me stay the same I want to be